and Cindy for sharing your hearts and sharing of God's work of grace in your lives. Encourage everyone here, and we thank God for you. Well, we have the, the surprise that we told you about is revealed today. We have a special guest to minister to us, Pastor Peter Smith, a longtime uh, partner in the gospel, a brother in Christ, and a dear friend to me and to our church. And uh, he is here with his family, Sonia and uh, Matthew, Joshua, Matthew, Catherine. Used to be little Daniel, but not, any, not little anymore. Big Daniel uh, joining us. And uh, they're here visiting family, uh, Taffin and Shasta and their newborn, Kai. And they were supposed to be here a few weeks ago. And I, I told them, well, can you delay that, you know, a few weeks? You know, Kai's not going anywhere. <laughs> and uh, our anniversary's on the 14th. So if you could delay coming on this weekend and minister to us, that'd be great. So it was so gracious to accommodate his uh, travel plans uh, to mi- minister to us t- uh, today. So let's uh, open our hearts to him and to his word, to the word through him, and give him a warm welcome. Pastor Peter Smith. Thank you. Thanks, brother. Thank you. Uh, Grace to you. It's a real joy, privilege, and honor to be with you this morning. Uh, actually, we heard that there was announced last Sunday there's to be some special uh, speaker. He didn't come, so I'm here, okay? <laughs> uh, we are very thankful for what God's doing. Words of commendation are in order. Uh, before God, for how you have been faithful to him in the gospel, how he has been faithful to you in the church. We rejoice in the marvel of what he's doing here. I have to say, before we go into the word, that every time, and this is no exaggeration, every time that your church, Cornerstone Bible Church, comes to mind, there's thankfulness in my heart. And there's so many times in conversation, I've, I find myself boasting, not of what you have done, but what God, through his spirit and grace and his word, has done in your midst. This is an unusual thing. And I hope you have a sense of that, the gravity of what God is accomplishing here before you in the gospel. It's an unusual thing. And so bless God. Bless God for his faithfulness to you. Rejoice in his spirit and what he is accomplishing here. It was a joy to hear the testimonies. Thank you again, Gary and Cindy, for blessing our hearts, reminding us of what God has done in making us his own, that we abide, we don't strive, but we abide in the gospel. I bring greetings this morning from our little church there out north of Detroit. Now, totally a surprise of God a little over a year ago that we'd be going in that direction. Uh, people often ask, well, how's it been now that you're off from the Czech Republic and in a different situation there in Michigan? And I have to tell them, yeah, we feel like we're in a foreign land, you know? And literally people have come up to us and said, uh, you speak different than us. Now, we're in the U.S., okay? And they say, where are you from? So I have to explain, you know, born in L.A. and when the Czech Republic and so on and so forth. But things are different coming back. But we thank God there, the church, uh, very like-minded. Love Christ. God has brought them through a huge storm. They survived it by his grace. And they are strongly committed to making Christ known there in that little area north of Detroit. So pr- please pray for us that the gospel will go forth with power. Uh, they love his word. Uh, they have so, they, without a pastor, for actually for about a year. So you walk in a situation like that, they're used to surviving without a pastor. It's like, not a problem, you know, you can't go wrong. But to God has done a neat thing. God is adding to his church, and thank you for your prayers for us. You know, the church there in Detroit, north of Detroit, in so many ways shares the zeal that the, and the passion that you have for Christ here as a church. In fact, it's the focus that we want to look at this morning. The focus that we will consider is the hallmarks of a life, of a church, we could say, of a ministry, 
that honors our Lord Jesus Christ. I'm excited about this because I believe this is the message God has for each of us this morning, how we can be focused singularly on what it takes to honor our Lord Jesus Christ. Just by way of background, the Apostle Paul had an unswerving allegiance to making Christ the focus of his life, that he would honor him, whether he'd be dead or alive. It was that kind of a throbbing passion in his heart. In fact, in 2 Corinthians 5, verse 9, the Apostle Paul declares, Therefore, we also have as our ambition, whether home or absent, to do what? To be pleasing to him. That's the ambition the Apostle Paul had in his life. And we must ask the question, what are the elements that constitute such a consuming ambition to honor Christ? I want us to look at God's Word, but before we do, before we go to Ephesians 3, let me give you some a backdrop to understand about the hallmarks before coming to that point, what the passage has to say to us. We're going through Ephesians, actually, as a church, and thinking and praying, God, what should I bring this morning from your Word? I thought there's no greater passage than where we are this morning, where we'll be actually next week, so you guys get it first of all, Okay from Ephesians chapter 3. We know that Paul penned the letter to the Ephesians from prison. And Paul was there, he says, as a prisoner of Jesus Christ. In chapter 1, the, the whole focus there is the spiritual blessings that are ours as God's children in Christ. He says that we have been predestined, we have been redeemed, we have been forgiven of sin. And on top of all that, the Apostle Paul in the first chapter says that we have been given an eternal inheritance and a dying hope. That's all of ours. Why? Because we're in Christ. Then in chapter 2, the Apostle Paul declares the glorious mystery that is then disclosed. What is the mystery? Is that the Jews and Gentiles have become one, the formerly enemies, they've become one, they've been made equals in Christ. That brings us to chapter 3. Look in chapter 3 of Ephesians, and let's see a surprising thing there. The opening words in verse 1, for this reason, indicate that Paul is going to pray for them. Yet before finishing his sentence, all of a sudden, out of nowhere, Paul stops. Right there in verse 1. And then he veers off of his subject all the way until verse 14, where he prays to God for them. We say, wait a minute, Paul, you start off, you're going to pray in chapter 3, verse 1, and then you're on this huge digression. Paul, why this digression? What are you doing? Paul wants to magnify the greatness of God's grace in his life, even at a time when he was in prison, even in an impossible situation. And then in verses 8 through 13, Paul writes very personally, Ephesians 3, verses 8 through 13, and this is our text this morning. Paul gives us characteristics of a life and of a ministry that honor the Lord Jesus Christ. Before I read verses 8 to 13, would you pray with me? Let's ask the Spirit of God to teach us from his word this morning. Oh God, we love you, and we love you because of your prior love to us in Christ. Oh God, we would pray that your Spirit would work mightily through your word in our hearts. Father, speak to us. May our hearts be sensitive. May we be passionately pursuing those things that you've called us to. Rejoice, O oh God, that you're our teacher. We wait on your word. In Christ's name, amen. Let's read our text together, Ephesians chapter 3, verses 8 through 13. The Apostle Paul writes to the church at Ephesus, 
to me, the very least of all saints, this grace was given to preach to the Gentiles the unfathomable riches of Christ and to bring to light what is the administration of the mystery which for ages has been hidden in God who created all things in order that the manifold wisdom of God might now be made known through the church in the rulers and the authorities in the heavenly places. This was in accordance with the eternal purpose which he carried out in Christ Jesus our Lord, in whom we have boldness and confident access through faith in him. Therefore, I ask you not to lose heart in my tribulations on your behalf, for they are your glory. We'll stop right there. First of all, to have a heart, to have a ministry, to have a church that honors Christ, we must be contrite of heart. Contrite of heart. Notice what the Apostle Paul says in verse 8, how he perceives himself. He says, to me, the very what? The very least of all saints. Now, this is an astounding statement because we have to remember who is writing this. It is the Apostle Paul. The Apostle Paul preached the gospel more than any other individual of his time and of our time. The Apostle Paul who planted churches from Jerusalem all the way to modern-day Yugoslavia. The Apostle Paul who penned a total of 12 New Testament books under the inspiration of the, of the Spirit of God. Now, if there was a spiritual hall of fame, Paul would rank at the very top. He'd be head and shoulders above all the rest. There would literally be no close second to the Apostle Paul in that Hall of Fame. Yet here what is Paul saying. Paul says, line up all the totality of all the believers since the beginning of the church at Pentecost. Maybe there would be hundreds of thousands of Christians then. And he says, there I stand at the very end. He's saying, I am the most unworthy and the most undeserving of all Christians. Some might react to Paul, wait a minute. You've got a pitiful, sad view of self. It's just too bad. But what you need is a solid dose of positive Christian self-esteem. That's what you need, Paul. You've got to outgrow such a miserable perspective and learn to love yourself. I mean, get with it, Paul. May I submit to you this morning that Paul's contrite view of himself is what made him useful to Christ. That is the key that God saw and used to make him useful to our Lord Jesus Christ. For Paul was ever mindful that God requires his servants to have a contrite heart. He knew David's statement in Psalm 51, 17, where David said the sacrifices of God are what? A broken spirit. A broken and a contrite heart, O God, you will not despise. The Apostle Paul remembered God's word to the prophet Isaiah. In Isaiah 66, verse 2, But to this one, God says, I will look to him who is humble and contrite of spirit and who trembles at my word. The Apostle Paul was such a man, contrite of heart, for humility deeply marked his life and ministry. Now think with me now. Let's consider the Apostle Paul's progression of how he viewed himself as he went through life and ministry. Some years even before writing our text here to the Ephesians, the Apostle Paul penned two compendium uh, epistles to the Corinthian believers. And you remember what he wrote in 1 Corinthians chapter 15? In chapter 15, verse 9, he says of himself, For I am what? I am the least of the apostles. 
who am not fit to be called an apostle because I persecuted the church of God. He then says, of these 12, I'm the least. Here in Ephesians, Paul goes beyond that. He says, I'm the very least of who? Not just 12, but of all the saints. Well, he makes an even more shocking statement about his own self-perception when he writes his letter in 1 Timothy. In 1 Timothy chapter 1, verse 15, Paul declares that Jesus Christ came into the world to save sinners, among whom I am what? Foremost of all. I am foremost of all, he says. Paul is saying this at a time, not as a new Christian, not as a young believer, not as a novice in the faith, one who has walked with God, who is seasoned as a mature ministry, minister of Christ. He says, I am the foremost of all sinners. He is the worst, he says. See, the longer that the Apostle Paul walked with Christ and experienced God's grace in his life, the more profoundly he sensed his sinfulness and his unworthiness before Christ. Do you recall what were the last words of John the baptizer before he died for Christ? In John chapter 3, verse 30, seven words of uncommon humility. John the baptizer says, I must, excuse me, he must increase, but I must decrease. So too, as Christ increased in the life of the Apostle Paul, Paul decreased. For true growth and intimacy with Christ and his word does not give a man a big head. It gives him a broken heart. Why a broken heart? Not only because of a profound sense of our sinfulness, but because of the deep unworthiness of God's grace in his life, and watch now, and in his ministry. Look at that connection right here in verse 8, Ephesians 3, verse 8. What Paul says about that grace in his life and in his ministry. He says, to me, the very least of all saints, this grace was given to me. And now notice how he describes it. To preach to the Gentiles the unfathomable riches of Christ. Stop there. What is grace? I love to define grace this way. Grace is everything for nothing to those who don't deserve anything. That is true in salvation. That is true in our sanctification. That is true in our serving Christ and his church. All is totally undeserved favor of God. And that's exactly what Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15.10. In 1 Corinthians 15.10, Paul says three times, he emphasizes three times, God's grace in his life and ministry. It says, by the grace of God, I am what I am. And his grace toward me did not prove vain. Now watch what he says, but I labored even more than all of them. Yet not I, but what? The grace of God in me. God's grace labored through Paul. We ask, okay, Paul, you're saying, you're showing us that, lo- that contrite heart before God, and it's tied into understanding God's grace. Paul, how did you get there? It wasn't that Paul strived and tried to be humble. And he didn't minimize all the ways that God had used his life and ministry. He didn't. Rather, Paul, actually, we know he magnified his ministry and his apostleship. See, the path to humility of heart is not trying to ignore the mighty things that God has done in your life. For that will lead only to false humility and greater pride. No true contrition of heart comes from one thing, 
thinking rightly about the infinite grace of God in our lives and ministry. Paul never got over the fact that God rescued him by his grace. He never forgot that. And by his grace that God entrusted him with the greatest message to preach of that grace. The word preached right here in verse 8. We need to understand it, what Paul's saying. The word is euangelizo. It's the term in English, of course, we get evangelize. The focus Paul is saying when he talks about preaching God's grace is making Christ known where? Not behind the pulpit, but it's the marketplace, sharing with those in darkness. For this is the vertical message of the gospel to the lost man that we proclaim. I'm so grateful to God for you as a church, how you are faithfully heralding the message of grace to those still without Christ. The outreaches, the missions, including the Czech Republic, that we see that going forth from you. I praise God for that. Paul says of this message that we proclaim, he calls it an amazing thing. He says that the message is of the unfathomable riches of Christ. What does he mean by that? He is saying that literally that these riches of Christ are untrackable. They're untrackable. They're inexhaustible. Our spiritual resources in Christ are so incredibly deep and so infinite that we can never come close to ever mining the depths of them. A.T. Pearson was a faithful preacher of the gospel, a missionary statesman of the, 19th, of the 20th century. And he had this to say about these riches of Christ. He says this, There's a boundless continent, there's a world, a universe of riches that still lies before you when you have carried your search to the limits of possibility. In other words, we can only experience more and more of God's grace in our salvation, yes, in our sanctification, yes, but also in proclaiming the good news. All these riches in the gospel are ours, both to possess and to proclaim. A couple weeks ago, we were in the doctor's office. Daniel had a little soccer injury. Picked up a magazine. It was a sports magazine. You don't spend time reading those things. But anyhow, reading about this baseball player, phenomenal player, stealing bases, hitting home runs and all this. And it says this article that they gave him a, a bonus, a million-dollar bonus. That's a pretty nice bonus, right? I mean, I'd say half of that. But then it says this. It says what he did with that check was he framed that check and he put it on his wall in his house. And I thought, man, what a huge waste. Christian, not for us. God's riches in Christ are for us not only to savor, but to share with others. You've got to do something with them to proclaim that message to others. Yet it doesn't even stop there with the proclamation. Look in verse 9. Look at it. what else God's grace produced in the Apostle Paul. He says, and to bring to light what is the administration of the mystery. Paul, in deep humility, not only preached the gospel to the lost, but we see here in verse 9, he also expounded upon its meaning to believers. To believers. It's the horizontal sharing the gospel to those in his church. We ask, what is his goal in teaching this to the church? He says, as it were, literally, that he would turn the lights on in the minds of the saved about the marvelous mystery of Christ. That God's people would understand his grace. And what is that specifically? It is that all believers, not just Jews, but also all Gentiles, non-Jews, just like ourselves, are, have become one entity in Christ. 
That's the marvel. That's the mystery. Now flip back to Ephesians 2. I want you to see where Paul begins to develop that. In Ephesians 2, verses 13 and 14, he speaks clearly and deeply about this mystery. Verse 13, but now in Christ Jesus, you who formerly were far off, who's that? Those are the Gentiles, have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace, who made both groups into one and broke down the barrier of the dividing wall. Stop there. We have to understand, we have to imagine the huge shockwave that hit the church there at Ephesus when they read these words. Because that church was composed of both Jew and Gentile. It would be far more unbelievable than if we were told this morning that Palestinians are now on a best friendship relationship with modern-day Israel. What Paul saying about the Jew and Gentile former enemies being brought one was more shocking to them. Because they had been at enmity with one another for many millennia. What did God do? God solved that through the mystery of the gospel through Christ in the church. And we should this morning rejoice as we will for eternity over this mystery of the gospel, the miracle of the church. God has given incredible unity and diversity through Christ's body of the church, hasn't he? You know, look at you this morning. What a testimony of the four states of heaven will experience. That God has made us, regardless of our backgrounds, ethnic backgrounds, language, geographical backgrounds, one, because we are in Christ. Such grace of God in the church forever humbled the heart of the Apostle Paul. He couldn't get over it. He couldn't forget it. And this will have a humbling impact on us as well as we recognize what God has done. He's made us all one in Christ. Well, the second hallmark. The second hallmark of a life and church that honors Christ is in verses 10 and 11. Is that we must be consumed with God's fame. Consumed with God's fame. Here we see Paul share God's amazing purpose for him in ministry. Look at it there in verse 10. This is astounding. He says that the manifold wisdom of God might now be made known through the church to the rulers and the authorities in the heavenly places. Paul is using, as it were, a metaphor of a school. Now hang with me. Let me see if I can explain this this way. He's saying God is the teacher. The universe is the classroom, and the angels are the students, the pupils that are learning. And the lesson, Paul tells us, is of the multifaceted, multicolored wisdom of God. But there's something missing in the lesson. There is an illustration that's missing. And let me ask you, from verse 10, what is the great object lesson that God is using to teach the angels? What is it? You can say it. You want to guess? Start to see. There it is. The church. That's you and I. We are the object lesson that God has chosen. Chosen. God is holding before all the ranks of angelic beings, exhibit A as it were, of his wisdom and his plan for the church. Now think about this. Why is it so marvelous? Why is it so astounding to the Apostle Paul? Why does he make such a big deal about this in this text? You know, the angels observe God's power in creation. They see it. Incredible power of God displayed in creation. They observe God's wrath at Sinai. They see God's love at Calvary. But above all these, they see his multifaceted wisdom where? Here, in the church. Like no other 
illustration for them in the universe. They marvel at what God has done, that God could take Jew and Gentile, slave and free, male and female, all guilty of crucifying Christ and deserving of hell. And what did he do? He brought them together through the cross and made them one entity in Christ Jesus. That is the superb miracle that is on display for the watching angels. By the way, we know that God created the angels with a profound interest to learn of what God is doing so they can better worship him. They are beings that learn. They're not omniscient. And we see hints throughout the New Testament of how God teaches these angelic hosts through us as his church. Let's remind ourselves of them. First of all, in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, there's an amazing example. In fact, you turn there with me, would you? 1 Corinthians 11, verse 10. There's a complex situation in the context of the Corinthian church. Paul is dealing with the situation of whether those in the Corinthian assembly, the women, should pray with their heads covered or not. And Paul answers them in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 10. He writes, Therefore the, women, the woman ought to have a symbol of authority on her head. And now notice what follows. Why? Because, what does it say? Because of the angels. What is the compelling motivation for these Corinthian women to show submission to the church? Their husband? Their husbands? Their church? It's far beyond that. It's because the angels are watching. They before God's throne are observing what happens there in the church. And what happens when a wayward sinner repents of sin and in so doing becomes a part of Christ's church? What happens in heaven? Luke 15 tells us that the angels in heaven do what? They rejoice. You see, angels truly are spectators who with great God-given curiosity follow what takes place in the body of Christ, the church. The Apostle Peter tells us more of that, more specifically. He actually indicates that the angels have an extremely inquisitive desire to learn more of God's plan of salvation and what God is accomplishing. Turn, please, with me to 1 Peter. 1 Peter chapter 1. A marvelous text where we see this laid out before us. 1 Peter 1, we'll read verses 10 through 12. About God's plan, the gospel, Peter explains in verse 10. As to this salvation, the prophets who prophesied of this grace that would come to you made careful search and inquiries, seeking to know what person or time the Spirit of Christ within them was indicating as he predicted the sufferings of Christ and the glories to follow. It was revealed to them, those are the prophets, that they were not serving themselves but you, and these things which now have been announced to you through those who preach the gospel to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven. And now watch what it says. Things into which angels long to look. That means that countless angelic beings literally lean forward, stoop over to look closely into what God is doing. Where? In the church. But it doesn't end there. The Apostle John in Revelation, Revelation 7. Let's go there together also, okay? Revelation 7, a magnificent passage where we see it come together, how God is getting glory from all this through what the angels are watching happening in the church. Revelation chapter 7. It's a scene of heaven. We'll begin in verse 9. First John describes those that Christ has redeemed. 
And he writes, After these things I looked, and behold, a great multitude which no one could count from every nation and all tribes and peoples and tongues, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes and palm branches were in their hands. And they cried out with a loud voice, saying, Salvation to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. And now notice the response of the watching angels there in verse 11. And all the angels were standing around the throne and around the elders and the four living creatures, and they fell on their faces before the throne and worshiped God, saying, Amen, blessing and glory and wisdom and thanksgiving and honor and power and might be to our God forever and ever. Amen. Question. What is it that caused these angels to break forth in praise and to glorify God? What motivated that response? Seeing God's great salvation of this entire multitude, which culminated in their worship. And this shows a powerful thing about God's purpose in the church. It is this. When we, as God's redeemed, live for God's fame and live for God's glory, and we magnify Him, what happens? We begin literally a chain reaction that continues in heaven for eternity. The angels marvel at God's wisdom in saving and changing us, and therefore, they worship God all the more. And this should impact our thinking. This should impact our living. This should elevate our understanding of the importance of the church and God's eternal plan. Go back, please, to Ephesians chapter 3. We see how this comes together in verse 11. Paul says of the church, now in verse 11, he's talking about God's eternal plan. This was in accordance with the eternal purpose which he carried out in Christ Jesus our Lord. From this we see so unmistakably that the church is at the center of God's eternal plan for glorifying himself. The church was no afterthought in God's mind. And this should make us incredibly thankful that we have been called, we have been placed into Christ's body, the church. We belong to that. And it should compel us to find our place in the body to minister, if we don't have a place to minister at present. It should cause us to be consumed with God's fame. Thirdly, the third hallmark of a life that honors Christ, or a church that honors Christ, number three, we must be confident before Christ. Confident before Christ. When we consider all that God is perfectly accomplishing in, his, in this great scheme of redemption, what happens? Our faith grows. Our faith is bolstered. And here in verse 12, chapter 3 of Ephesians, it says that in Christ we have two things that give us confidence before Christ. First of all, boldness. Boldness, it says, the term boldness means that we have freedom to say all. We have freedom of speech. We can say anything what's on our heart. It is the attitude of freedom and openness that comes from a right relationship with another. This is the freedom that's a complete antithesis of what Adam and Eve did after they sinned against God in the garden when they hid themselves. We have boldness. Secondly, it says in verse 12, we have what? We have access. Confident access. This word was used to describe one who was permitted in the very presence to have an audience with a king. There was an officer there in the king's court. His duty was actually to introduce any who would speak to the king. Christian Christ is the one who has given us faith, the conflict, come before the King of Kings in prayer. He is, as it were, our introducer before God. 
We are far more than just card-carrying members of God's court. For there is never a time, there is never a place, there is never a circumstance when we as believers cannot come boldly before God. We have Christ who grants us open access to the Father when? At all times. All times. We have a perfect high priest who intercedes for us. Hebrews 4, verse 16, calls us, therefore, to an appropriate response since we have open access. It's not a suggestion. Hebrews 4, 16 is a command. It says, let us, therefore, do what? Let us draw near with confidence to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. What does that mean? It means regardless of our unfaithfulness, regardless of our failures, our sin, our disappointments, our trials, our heartaches, we come to God as our loving Father. He no longer condemns us, but He loves us. He forgives us, and He gives us grace to meet our greatest need. So let, let's be those before God that draw near in faith with full confidence. That Christ allows us to know Him, to minister. The fourth hallmark of honoring Christ we see in verse 13. Concern for the saints. God calls us as his church to be ever growing, ever increasingly concerned for the saints. Here Paul completes his, his digression in verse 13. He gives a personal word of encouragement to the readers. Look there with me. Verse 13. Therefore, I ask you not to lose heart in my tribulations on your behalf. Why? For they are your glory. It's a what Paul's saying. If there's anyone that should be losing heart, you think it would be the Apostle Paul in prison, right? But it wasn't. See, Paul is so consumed with their situation, he's preoccupied with them. And his concern, though he's in prison, is that they wouldn't become discouraged or despondent or even give up because of his difficulty. It's almost as if the Apostle Paul is saying, listen, Ephesians, I'm in prison, and that's for your sake. Now, don't you go and lose heart because I haven't. That's the Christ-like, that's the selfless response that we see in the Apostle Paul. Concern for the other believers. It's the same response, the same heart that he taught his fellow worker, Epaphroditus. Remember Epaphroditus? Amazing statement that Paul makes of him in Philippians 1. Paul calls him a messenger to my need. Epaphroditus ministered to Paul's need. And he ministered to those in the church at Philippi. In Philippians chapter 1, verse 26, Paul writes that Epaphroditus got deathly sick and he became distressed. Why was Epaphroditus so distressed? It wasn't over a sickness. Rather, it was because he didn't want the believers there in Philippi to worry about his condition. That, friends, is the mind of Christ. There's the heart of concern for others that deeply honor Christ. You know, I thank God for I see this hallmark of selfless love here at Cornerstone Bible Church. Rejoice so I see your overwhelming concern to others modeled in your, in your church. James and Bob and your pastors have set an incredible example and high standard to me in this. You know, I see Christ so clearly in their lives and their families as they joyfully, as they sacrificially minister here to the needs of the saints. Not just them as leaders, but I thank God for all of you as a church and for how I see God's grace shining through you and how you minister to the others in God's family.
Borrowing from the words of the Apostle Paul, I say to you this morning, brethren, excel still more. Excel still more. Pursue humility. Pursue God's fame. Pursue trust in Christ and loving one another in the strength which Christ supplies. For those Christians, those are the hallmarks of a life and a church that honor Christ. Would you pray with me together? Let's pray. Oh, gracious Father, our desire is to allow your spirit to change us in our hearts. Father, we'd ask that you would make us aware of how we so often are thinking of ourselves, our own concerns, rather than those of Christ. Father, we confess that we need to have hearts that are humble before you. Father, that we would be more concerned about your glory and your fame rather than our own. Father, we pray that we would be those that would ever increasingly come boldly with confidence before Christ in prayer and pouring in our hearts before you. Father, we thank you that you give us the desire to grow. You give us the grace to grow more in Christ-likeness. Father, I thank you for what you have done and are doing in this church. God, for how Christ is seen, for how your grace is manifold. Father, may we ever increasingly live in such a way that all the hosts of heaven would have even greater reason to praise and to magnify your great name and your grace. We thank you, O God, for Christ's sake. Amen.